Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, podcast of excellence. We're talking about book seven, chapter 13, and I might sneeze. I might sneeze in the next seven minutes. The discussion prompts for uh, book seven, chapter 13. The Countess is very upset with Nikolai's choice to marry Sonia. What are her thoughts. She seems to be accusing Sonia of wanting Nikolai's money, but as we know, the Rostovs have lost... (coughs) Oh, it was sooner than I thought. Excuse me a moment. Have you ever heard a podcast where the guy sneezes and then blows his nose and then doesn't bother to edit it out? (laughs) Um, I'm a bit snotty. I've been, um, I'm moving house. I'm moving house in like five days. And so I'm packing up my house. And when you pack up, uh, there's a lot of dust involved because you, you move things that you haven't moved for a long time. I've just, before I've recorded this, gone around and taken all the picture frames off my walls uh, and paintings. And, um, yeah, a lot of dust came down with them. Um, hence the sneezing. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, um, the Countess seems to be accusing Sonia of wanting Nikolai's money. The Rostovs have lost much of their fortune. Reflect on the specific mood and feelings of the Countess. What do you think will happen when the Count, Natasha and Sonia get to Moscow? How will that trip go? Got a feel for Sonia here. I mean... It's, they even sort of admit it themselves. If they were financially okay, they would be very happy for Nikolai to be with Sonia. The fact that their cousins doesn't seem to bother them too much, which is... I guess it's a sign of the times. That's how it was back then. Um, sorry, I'm just listening. If I, if I sound like I'm pausing weirdly. I, I just heard a weird noise and I was trying to hear what it was. Because it's two in the morning right now, and I'm like, what's happening in my house? There shouldn't be anything happening. But it was the heater turning itself on. Um, so, yeah, you really needed to know that. Aren't you glad you're listening to this podcast right now? Uh, Ripster66 says this. So the Count and Countess have hosted Sonia in their home for years. They've known of Nikolai's attraction for a while, but now the Countess wants to lay blame at Sonia's feet for Nikolai's proposal. I found the Countess's reaction to be rather annoying and hypocritical. They pay little attention to their own financial situation and they are unwilling to make serious lifestyle changes, so they pin their hopes on Nikolai to marry someone rich. Then they get angry when he falls in love with Sonia, which they all saw coming years ago. I can't fathom what's going on... Sorry. I can't fathom what's going to happen in Moscow... I don't think things are going to go well for the Rostovs, though. I wouldn't be surprised if Nicholas ditched Sonia in order to save the family, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they decided to elope. I mean, how bad could being disinherited be if there's nothing left to inherit? Well, I think it's not so much the disinherited, it's the um, the prospect of marrying into wealth, you know? It seems like the kind of dowry thing that happened there, I don't know if it's called a dowry, but when you marry, when a, when you marry off your daughter, you kind of pay someone to take your daughter off your hands. 
So it's like, it's this is my understanding at least. Like it's the the female that brings the money, you know, if that makes sense. So um, I don't know. That was my understanding. I guess it goes both ways. Though. I guess whoever's got more money takes the money, um, as as it always has worked. But you know, I think the father will pay the husband of his daughter. So if a man comes up to you and says, I want to marry your daughter, you say, you you pay them to do it, essentially. You say, yeah, take my daughter off my hands. Um, and you pay them. I guess, it, I guess it was because women weren't so much in like the workforce. They didn't earn an income. So to have, <clears throat> excuse me, to have a woman in your household or in your family meant, um, you know, they weren't contributing a wage. They were essentially, I guess, costing money to have. So the father kind of pays the husband <laughs> to cover those costs. It seems so <laughs> weird now in the modern times, but I guess that was the norm. Moscow Hayes says, Karaka Kara Kikas. I bet nothing bad will happen in Moscow anytime soon. Slash sarcasm. Um, and Warren Kovofi says, Hopefully the sale of the Rostov's Moscow estate will help keep some of the Rostov's afloat. As frustrating as, frustrating as I find Nikolai, I still really enjoy his family and don't want to see them suffer, although suffering to them might be only having one enormous mansion instead of two. You do kind of keep coming back to that, don't you, when you read this book? It's like, they are in financial strife, and it's like, oh no, they might have to reduce their huge empire to, you know, a sustainable empire. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess it would suck to fall from, you know, grandeur down to common life, I suppose. Now, book eight is entitled eight, uh, 1811 to 1812. So we're moving forward into the future. Um, which I guess means that surely Natasha and Prince Andre are getting close to getting married. Chapter one goes like this. After Prince Andre's engagement to Natasha... Pierre, without any apparent cause, suddenly felt it impossible to go on living as before. Oh, whoops. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I just completely lost my place. Um, my bad. Hang on. I have to start again on that. I just, um, I tried to drag the little scroll bar at the right-hand side of the screen, and I missed it, and I instead highlighted like half of the book accidentally and it just dragged me down by like 10 pages or something all right sorry okay um pierre felt it impossible to go on living as before firmly convinced as he was of the truth revealed to him by his benefactor and happy as he had been in perfecting his inner man to which he had devoted himself with full ardour all the zest of such a life vanished after the engagement of Andre and Natasha, and the death 
of Joseph Alexevich, the news of which reached him almost at the same time. Only the skeleton of life remained. His house, a brilliant wife, who now enjoyed the favours of a very important personage, acquaintance with all Petersburg and his court service with its dull formalities. And this life suddenly seemed to Pierre unexpectedly loathsome. He ceased keeping a diary, avoided the company of the brothers, began going to the club again, drank a great deal, and came once more in touch with the bachelor's sets, leading such a life that the Countess Helena thought it necessary to speak severely to him about it. Pierre felt she, that she was right, and to avoid compromising her, went away to Moscow. In Moscow, as soon as he entered his huge house in which the faded and fading princesses still lived, with its enormous retinue, as soon as driving through the town he saw the Iberian shrine with innumerable tapers burning before the golden covers of the icons, the Kremlin Square, with its snow undisturbed by vehicles, the sleigh drivers and hovels of the Sivstev Varhok, those old Moscovites who desired nothing, hurried nowhere and were ending their days leisurely. When he saw those old Moscow ladies, the Moscow balls and the English club, he felt himself at home in a quaint haven. Quiet haven, sorry. In Moscow he felt at peace, at home warm and dirty as in an old dressing gown. Moscow society, from the old women down to the children, received Pierre like a long-expected guest whose place was always ready, awaiting him. For Moscow society, Pierre was the nicest, kindest, most intellectual, merriest, and most magnanimous of cranks, a heedless, genial nobleman of the Russian, old Russian type. His purse was always empty because it was open to everyone. Benefit performances, poor pictures, statues, benevolent societies, gypsy choirs, schools, subscription dinners, sprees, Freemasons, churches, and books. No one and nothing met with a refusal from him. And had it not been for two friends who had borrowed large sums from him and taken him under their protection, he would have given everything away. There was never a dinner or soiree at the club without him. As soon as he sank into his place on the sofa after two bottles of Margot, he was surrounded, and talking, disputing, and joking began. When there were quarrels, his kindly smile and well-timed jests reconciled the antagonists. The Masonic dinners were dull and dreary when he was not there. When after a bachelor's supper he rose with his amiable and kindly smile, yielding to the entreaties of the festive company to drive off somewhere with them, Shouts of delight and triumph arose among the men. At balls he danced if a partner was needed. Young ladies, married and unmarried, liked him because, without making love to any of them, he was equally amiable to all. Especially after summer. Illes Chamon, illness Par de Sec, they said of him. He is charming, he has no sex. Pierre was one of those retired gentlemen-in-waiting, of whom there were hundreds good-humouredly ending their days in Moscow. How horrified he would have been seven years before when he first arrived from abroad, had he been told that there, were, there was no need for him to seek or plan anything, that his rut had long been shaped, eternally predetermined, and that, wriggle as he might, he would be what all in his position were. He could not have believed it. 
Had he not at one long... Sorry. Had he not at one time longed with all his heart to establish a republic of, in Russia, then himself to be a Napoleon, then to be a philosopher, and then a strategist and the conqueror of Napoleon, had he not seen the possibility of and passionately desired the regeneration of the sinful human race and his own progress to the highest degree of perfection, had he not established schools and hospitals and liberated his serfs. But instead of all that, here he was, the wealthy husband of an unfaithful wife, a retired, a retired gentleman-in-waiting, fond of eating and drinking, and as he unbuttoned his waistcoat of abusing the government a bit, a member of the Moscow English Club, and a universal favourite in Moscow society, for a long time he could not reconcile himself to the idea that he was one of those same retired Moscow gentlemen-in-waiting he had so despised seven years before. Sometimes he consoled himself with the thought that he was only living this life temporarily, but then he was shocked by the thought of how many, like himself, had entered that life and that club temporarily. With all their teeth and hair, and had only left it when not a single tooth or hair remained. In moments of pride, when he thought of his position, it seemed to him that he was quite different and distinct from those other retired gentlemen-in-waiting he had formerly despised. They were empty, stupid, contented fellows, satisfied with their position, while I am still discontented and want to do something for mankind. But perhaps all these comrades of mine struggled just like me and sought something new, a path in life of their own, and like me, were brought by force circum brought by force of circumstances, society and race, by the elemental force against which man is powerless to the condition I am in, said he to himself in moments of humility. And after living some time in Moscow he no longer despised, but began to grow fond of, to respect and to pity his comrades in destiny as he pitied himself. Pierre no longer suffered moments of despair, hypochondria and disgust with life, but the malady that had formerly found expression in such acute attacks was driven inwards and never left him for a moment. What for? Why? What is going on in the world? He would ask himself in perplexity several times a day, involuntarily beginning to reflect anew on the meaning of the phenomena of life but knowing by experience that there were no answers to these questions, he made haste to turn away from them and to, took up a book or hurried off to the club or to Apollon Nikolaevich's to exchange the gossip of the town. Helena, who has never cared for anything but her own body and is one of the stupidest women in the world, thought Pierre, is regarded by people as the acme of intelligence and refinement and they pay homage to her. Napoleon Bonaparte was despised by all as long as he was great, but now that he has become a wretched comedian, the Emperor Francis wants to offer him his daughter in an illegal marriage. The Spaniards, through the Catholic clergy, offer praise to God for their victory over the French on the 14th of June, and the French, also through a, the Catholic clergy, offer praise because on that same 14th of June they defeated the Spaniards. My brother Masons swear by the blood that they are ready to sacrifice everything for their neighbour, but they do not give a rouble each to the collections for the poor, and they intrigue the Astral Lodge against the manor, seekers and fuss about an authentic Scotch carpet and a charter that nobody needs. 
and the meaning of which the very man who wrote it does not understand. We all profess the Christian law of forgiveness, of injuries, and love of our neighbours, but law, in honour of which we have built in Moscow forty times forty churches, but yesterday a deserter was knouted to death, and a minister of that same law of love and forgiveness, a priest, gave the soldier a cross to kiss before his execution. So thought Pierre, and the whole of his general deception, which everybody accepts, accustomed as it was to... Sorry. Accustomed as he was to it, astonished him each time as if it were something new. I understand the deception and confusion, he thought, but how am I to tell them all that I see? I've tried, and have always found that they too, in the depths of their souls, understand it as I do, and only try not to see it. So it appears that it must be so. But I, what is to become of me, thought he. He had the unfortunate capacity many men, especially Russians, have of seeing and believing in the possibility of goodness and truth, but of seeing the evil and falsehood of life too clearly to be able to take a serious part in it. Every sphere of work was connected in his eyes with evil and deception, whether whatever he tried to be, whatever he engaged in, the evil and falsehood of it repulsed him and blocked every path of activity. Yet he had to live and to find occupation. It was too dreadful to be under the burden of these insoluble problems, as he abandoned himself to any distraction in order to forget them. He frequented every type kind of society, drank much, bought pictures, engaged in building, and above all, read. He read and read everything that came to hand on coming home, while his valets were still taking off his things. He picked up a book and began to read. From reading, he passed to sleeping, from sleeping to gossip in drawing rooms of the club, from gossip to carousels, car car carousels and women, from carousels back to gossip, reading and wine. Drinking became more and more a physical and also a moral necessity. Though the doctors warned him that with his corpulence wine was dangerous for him, he drank a great deal. He was only quite at ease when, having poured several glasses of wine mechanically into his large mouth, he felt a pleasant warmth in his body, an amiability towards all his fellows, and a readiness to respond superficially to every idea without probing it deeply. Deeply? <laughs> Did I say deeply or deeply? Uh, only after emptying a bottle or two did he feel dimly that the terrible tangled skein of life which previously had terrified him was not as dreadful as he had thought. He was always conscious of some aspect of that skein, as with a buzzing in his head after dinner or supper, he chatted and listened to conversations or read. But under the influence of wine he said to himself, it doesn't matter. I'll get it unraveled. I have a solution ready, but have no time now. I'll think it all out later. But the later on never came. In the morning, on an empty stomach, all the old questions appeared in as insoluble and terrible as ever. And Pierre hastily picked up a book, and if anyone came to see him, he was glad. Sometimes he remembered how he had heard the soldiers in war when entrenched under the enemy's fire if they have nothing to do, try hard to find some occupation, the more easily to bear the danger. To Pierre, all men seemed like those soldiers, seeking refuge from life, some in ambition, some in cards, some in framing laws, some in women, 
some in toys, some in horses, some in politics, some in sports, some in wine, and some in governmental affairs. Nothing is trivial, and nothing is important. It's all the same. Only to save oneself from it as best as one can, thought Pierre. Only not to see it, that dreadful it. Alright, there we go. There's another chapter for you, Pierre having a bit of an identity crisis by the sounds of things. Doesn't know what he wants to do. Doesn't know who he wants to be. Everything seems a bit pointless. A bit mm, corrupt, maybe, almost. All right, guys. Uh, guys. Guys. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.